Hello and welcome to episode four of Plotcast. I'm here uh, with Patrick Keating, my fellow co-host, and Maria Linkoven-Ness of Sefik, because we are talking today about trade associations. Uh, Maria, perhaps you just want to introduce yourself, tell us a bit about what you do, uh, who you work for, so on and so forth. Thanks, Connor, and thanks, Patrick, for having me here today. And please, uh, word of caution, be gentle, because this is the first time that I'm recording a podcast as a guest. <laughs> Welcome. And I, Welcome. Thank it's you. a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> and I... Um, so I started my career as a broadcast journalist, so I used to be a lot on the other side of the mic, which I think is a much more comfortable place to be than being in the spotlight and trying to be clear, concise and on message. So I'll do my best, but this is my baptism by fire. <laughs> so a few words about myself. I'm a communications director in CEFIC, and what does this acronym stand for? CEFIC uh, means European Chemical Industry Council. Basically, we're the voice of the chemical industry in Europe. What is probably a less known fact is that we are the largest trade association in Brussels in terms of headcount. We have more than 170 colleagues working with us in Brussels, uh, which is probably a very shocking figure by Brussels standards, but not surprising if you know a little bit more about the chemical industry. So chemicals are present or are used to make more than 90% of all manufactured goods. So everything from the cars we drive to the electronic equipment we're using today to record this podcast, everything is made with the help of chemicals. So that means logically that we as industry have stakes in pretty much every policy area and we monitor and engage on everything from climate and energy to product safety, chemical safety, obviously research and innovation. So to all our listeners, I think thousands of people in Brussels listening to us, if you consider a job change, I can only invite you to check our vacancies <laughs> on our website and come and work uh, in CEFIC, you won't be disappointed. Is it the largest industry in Europe? Because you're bigger than automobiles, aren't you? It's the fourth largest manufacturing industry in Europe. So pretty, pretty huge thing. Pretty big, mm -hmm. pretty big. Yeah. Interesting that you're sort of sending a shout out for people to look to apply for jobs at Sefik. Do you need a, a background as a chemist? Do you have any background in chemistry? Yes, I, I do not have any background in chemistry. So everything that I learned about chemistry, this was the stuff from, from school. Uh, so that was, of course, a steep learning curve when I first joined Sefik five years ago. So indeed, I have background in journalism and in political science and PR. And 13 years ago, when I arrived here in Brussels uh, to study, I discovered this fascinating world of lobbying, of public affairs, and I just found that this working on the nexus of government affairs and media relations, corporate communications, that was something that was um, a good match for me personally. And 172 people working in the organisation. Is part of your role internal communications as well? So how, what's, what's the balance in, in what you do between communicating on behalf of the industry, but also communicating with those 172 fellow colleagues within the industry uh, association? Yeah, so this is indeed, when, it, when it, we talk about communications, I mean, one would naturally think immediately about external comms, but internal <coughs> comms, and especially when you have 170 people, that's important. And when, when we also talk about internal communications, it's membership-related communication that is, that is crucial, uh, because, of course, for trade associations, uh, members are uh, one of the main target audiences, even sometimes more important than, than the world outside us. And uh, as a I think any good trade association always strives to provide you know, better services to our members, deliver better value to our members, 
and a lot of of course communication efforts go into ensuring that members uh, get this value for example uh, in Cefic we have developed uh, a news app we are I think the first and the only trade association in Brussels to have such service to the members because we recognize the need from membership to receive information immediately certainly now in this very busy legislative environment so the Cefic news app it's available for for everybody of course to download but members have a privileged access to to specific content so whenever there is a new proposal coming out from the commission for example or there is a hearing in the parliament on the le- relevant topic you know within uh, literally a few minutes or within an hour after it's finished members receive a push notification on their smartphone with uh, with analysis with the summary what's happened and what it means for them so providing this kind of value to the membership and managing all the the channels that uh, serve our members this is uh, also an important part of our job I quite like that innovation because both Patrick and I are the kind of in-house members of a trade association, right? And we have thousands of emails a day and you kind of get that kind of death by a thousand small bits of information. So that's a really good thing, I think, to to centralise that information and to like increase the efficiency with which you communicate to the members. Did you have any challenges like kind of getting that through internally? Because we talked with Laura Shields and Adrian Heal last time about the, the chain of approval and things like that. Do you find the chain of approval to be restrictive or permissive? Like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think this is when, when you know, we talk about the challenges of, of, of working in a trade association or doing comms or taking any decision in a trade association. Of course, lengthy approval processes. This is one of the, the big sometimes stumbling blocks. Um, to be honest, I don't think there is... Um, a way to to go around it because this is just the nature of, of our business um, we are consensus driven organizations and this is just natural that sometimes it just takes time to arrive at a certain conclusion a certain position what i can also recommend also to all our peers working in other trade associations is that you just factor in in your work and be very generous with your time allocation if you think that something will take two days to approve probably factoring three weeks just to be on the safe <laughs> side but for really important key pieces of, of work that that you you really care about that is, you think is really crucial for your organization just from the very beginning try to maybe establish shorter approval lines work directly with your secretary general managing director president or a very small and agile committee to get things done and approved uh, in a very short time you sort of touched a little bit on on getting that buy-in from from members and so on what it when you're developing communications or messages on behalf of the trade association what role do do member companies play in feeding into that are, are you pulling expertise and insight from the member companies or is it that you're proposing and the the, the members approve you can describe it as a co-creation process uh, of course we pull out expertise from our members but we also of course feed in our expertise to them so at the end it becomes uh, a product that is not only technically correct but also obviously resonates politically with the audiences that at the end of the day we're trying to influence here. Yeah coming back to sort of the I think one of the challenges I've seen working in as a policy comms person in trade associations before but in in, in the work that uh, I also see as, as a member there's a disconnect between the messages and the comms that have been pushed out by the trade association which are sometimes very narrowly focused on objectives here in Brussels, so moving a piece of legislation or, or trying to impact the policy process. 
But then sometimes you see the communications being undertaken by the member companies, whether it's um, consumer PR or trying to position the company in a certain way. And sometimes there's a bit of a conflict and, and maybe it's, it's you know, the, the comms here is perhaps a bit more conservative and, 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 and trying to maybe, uh, you know, to be frank, slow things down. Whereas the member companies are positioning themselves as, you know, innovative and accelerating sustainability or, or, or that sort of thing. So it'd be interested to see if, 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 if you've got experience of that and how you sort of manage sometimes that, that, that challenge. Yeah. Because I, I think, you know, sometimes in the bubble we go, we, we think we're communicating within the Brussels bubble, but then you have to realise that MEPs and commission officials watch television and read magazines and they see the shiny adverts that are being pushed out to, yeah. to consumers. But we need to control that information. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Those are very, very interesting questions. I think there are two answers to, to this question. So first is, well, by, by nation, by definition, trade associations operate as consensus-driven organizations, and that, of course, sometimes leads to a very general, vague, and not so ambitious position just because we have to incorporate everybody's views. So this is, of course, the could you could call it sometimes a disadvantage. I mean, on the other hand, that also... Um, gives more having a trade association and speaking at the trade association sometimes carries more weight and more credibility uh, just because we represent the whole sector and that often translates into better access to key decision makers so this is one i think one of the values and advantages of of a trade association but yeah the downside is that indeed sometimes it results in the lowest common denominator mm. But the, the second thing that, uh, and I think that's interesting that you raised this, indeed sometimes, and especially in you know, working in, in the comms function and trade association, we mainly mingle with people from government affairs, regulatory affairs, teams in our member companies, and we do not have enough access to people who deal with corporate comms, with marketing, with uh, consumer, rela investor relations, with consumer marketing. And, and I think that could indeed be a limiting factor. So what I also personally do in, in CEFIC and what I think advise everybody to do is to try to, to get access to that public, to that audience, set up a network. It could be a very informal network of corporate communication directors from all member companies. Having this gives you immediately two advantages. First is that you have a forum to air your ideas, but also listen to their expertise and see how this could be applied in Brussels. And secondly, that can also give more legitimacy to comms work because it's I, Maria, propose something to my leadership, that's one thing. But if my ideas are backed up by a committee mm. comprised of members A, B and C, that's, that's a different story. That resonates with us because even within government affairs, we still struggle to see many sides of the business. Mm -hmm. And we were in the UK earlier this week and speaking with some of our sales and kind of product orientated colleagues, it's a different world. Like <laughs> you, you would think there are more to businesses and trade associations than just lobbying, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, but I, I want to ask a question. So you talked about the, the kind of consensus based approach of trade associations. But what happens when there is no consensus? And it's perhaps a bit of a, a spicy question. <laughs> so I have in my mind Airlines for Europe, right? Uh, and a few years ago, they underwent a big split. There's also another association that Patrick and I are acquainted with that had a few uh, members leave recently that we won't mention. How can you as a communicator, what is your role in developing that consensus, making sure things don't go wrong? And what's really the plan when, when the disagreements get a bit too hot to handle? 
I think every trade association has its own rules. It's really a very uh, boring topic because it's it's a really legal issue and I'm not an expert on this. In every association's bylaws and statutes, there is a process described how to deal with, uh, you know, arriving at a position and what happens if some members disagree. Then there is, I don't know, a fine print in the position paper saying that this does not represent the views of all members. Uh, but, I mean, as a communications professional, I think my um, maybe the, the easiest part of my job is that I deal with already, you know, existing positions. So I just take whatever is there and then I try to turn this into a, a nice product. And it's mainly my colleagues uh, from um, other teams that deal with this consensus making, mm. which is uh, indeed a very difficult job. But I think also the difficult job is turning that technical stuff into a good comms comms product. And we had a good conversation with Laura and Adrian about this last time, but I've also seen that challenge is trying to convince the technical experts that the input and the changes you're making or, or suggestions in terms of how you communicate something are, are the right ones. And you know, um, there's this terrible thing all trade bodies do going, we welcome proposal X, but are concerned about X, Y, and Z. And we know everybody in the bubble will see that and go, oof, that's terrible. So what it, what's your thinking about how uh, you as a communicator can help support delivering the messages that your trade associate wants to get across, shaping them, and how do you go about yeah, getting that internal buy-in from, from your experts and your technical people who maybe don't have that communications expertise and get worried if you start tinkering with a word here or there just to make it more impactful. Yeah. I think you just touched upon the, the two major challenges indeed of doing comms in Brussels. So the first one is yeah, welcoming. Um, so if you manage to, you know, publish a position paper or a press statement which does not start with words we welcome, then challenge one done. <laughs> yeah. But on a more serious note, indeed, uh, position papers, that's a beast of its own. It's, of course, the bread and butter of trade association. It's the essence of what we do. But uh, typically, it's a, a very long uh, document drafted by a group of technical experts. It is then agreed, PDF'd, put on the website, and then the job is considered done most of the time. But very little thought and attention goes to the actually exploring, you know, whether this position paper is read, who reads it, whether it's understood, whether the messages in that position paper really resonate with who we're trying to influence. We actually did an experiment in CEFIC some time ago. We looked at the data, the readership rates of various position papers on our website. And what the data confirmed, and this is sort of common sense in, <laughs> in a way, is that if you just publish it there, the readership rate will be close to zero. Mm -hmm. The only position papers that had, let's say, decent readership rates were the ones that were pushed on social media, uh, maybe advertised on our homepage, through various newsletters, other channels. So that's that already tells you something about the need to treat a position paper only as a start of the process, mm -hmm. not the end product. And so how can we as communication professionals, of course, make use of position papers? So, and I know that for a lot of us, it's this close to impossible to influence this at this drafting stage, just because the, yeah, <laughs> we all know this is very difficult. And if somebody managed to do that, um, I would really like to meet that person <laughs> and <laughs> shake his or her hand. But what you could do maybe alternatively is take this final position paper and turn this in, for example, into a press statement, uh, mm -hmm. organize a media briefing if there's really good information, good data there for the key media, 
turn it into two sets of speaking points, one more political, one more technical, have a webinar with your members and staff to socialize those speaking points with them, to equip them to be ambassadors of this position, not just you know handing over position paper and saying, well, this is our position. Of course, this is where you can also start thinking about, you know, video and infographic. I know that a lot of, you know, my peers and other associations are doing a really great job in creating short video explainers when, you know, policy director and director general, for example, uh, have like a two minute exchange on the three key points of what they're trying to say. What, what also works really well, what we discovered in CEFIC is the, the checklist approach. And I think there's something in our brains that uh, makes us, you know, pay attention to checklists because this, you know, activates this system one thinking very, very quick, no mental energy thinking. Is um, so we um, tr transform the position paper into just like a checklist or action plan or ten point action plan. It's just three, four sentences per per action. You know what we need and why we need this. And well, people love checklists. So this is a very low hanging fruit that I just can only advise everyone to, to make use of. So there are there are various ways that, that you can use, that you should use and must use to turn a position paper in the content that actually works in, in the long term uh, perspective. So I think it's really interesting what you were saying about um, some of the more modern methods of communication to, to help make those position papers more impactful, because I, I remember when I first started doing this in the early 2000s, you're right, it was it was a position paper and the internet didn't even exist properly back then. So it was literally printing it and putting it in pigeonholes in the, in the European Parliament. So there's been a lot of a lot of change in in the way things are done, the way things are communicated. And I think that's all all positive and, and, and forward looking and innovative. But from your point of view, what are the changes you've seen in, in, in the landscape in, in the last few years? What what do you think is is is, is going better? Where do you think there might still be challenges and, and what do you think we should be doing more of to, to be more impactful in, in terms of communications? Yeah, so um, if we look at the situation 10 years ago, I think only a handful of associations even had a communications director function, let alone a fully fledged communications team. And if there were somebody doing comms, then it would normally be you know jack of all trades, somebody... Uh, doing everything from updating a website to uh, organizing events and writing press releases. And this is where, of course, I think trade associations made um, a lot of use of consultancies who provided this expertise and that service and that skills. Well, fast forward to 2022, and certainly the last, I think, four or five years, the landscape is completely different. Certainly all the top, I don't know, 30, 50 trade associations in Brussels, they have corporate uh, communications director function, fully fledged teams uh, made up even of two to five people. So we're talking about, you know, bigger budgets, bigger responsibilities. So the situation has changed. And, and I think good to see that that investment in, in, in strong comms functions is, is being delivered and being put in place. But how do you justify that investment. So do you have any metrics that you use to, to measure the, the impact of what you're doing, the success of what you're doing, any, any KPIs? It's something that we often discuss. And as, as government affairs people, I, I, I hate to ever have a KPI play, applied against what I do because it's more output based. But I think, <laughs> yeah, how many meetings have I gone to? But I think comms, you can, you can have some, some KPIs because you were touching earlier on, on measuring 
audiences of position papers on, on the website, but do you have a broader set of metrics that you use? Yeah, so measurement is indeed is, uh, <laughs> the most dreaded question. <laughs> and measuring measurement in public affairs is, of course, extremely difficult. And in, in comms, it's also difficult just because, of course, you can measure all the output metrics, all the vanity metrics, you know, the number, the share of voice, the number of people who, you know, shared and liked something on social media or even, you know, downloaded, read your position paper, the number of visits. And, and these are all good metrics. They 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 should be collected, but of course they do not tell the whole story. They do not actually tell you whether what you do resonates and results in better advocacy outcomes. Because at the end of the day, as an advocacy-driven organization, a trade association needs to prove that this is thanks to what they do that certain you know, policy change has, change has occurred. And to the best of my knowledge, I don't think there is any straightforward methodology uh, Mm -hmm. in public affairs or comms on how to measure this. It's, I think, a combination, of course, of of quantitative and qualitative anecdotal feedback that uh, that is important here. But still, that doesn't mean that you should not be measuring this, because obviously, when if, if you see that nobody reads your position paper or nobody engages with you on social media or you're not even present on social media, then that's probably, it's safe to assume that your overall efforts are less successful, that they could be if you were there. Mm, yeah. I'm, I'm just like kind of thinking of what you just said through the lens of episode one, because do you remember Sebastian Rodriguez? And he said, we're, we're 10 years behind the US. Mm. And so we were just talking about social media metrics there, right? But other people say that social media is dying and that in 10 years' time that we won't really have uh, or a large part of our jobs won't involve social media. So perhaps if I just flip the question, we talked about how things have changed in the last 10 years. How do you think things will evolve in the next 10 years? Well, if I had a crystal ball, if I knew uh, (laughs) how the situation would look like in 10 years, I would have already retired a rich woman. (laughs) I think the key here is just to be very attuned to what's happening outside, to just monitor trends and then to see how you could apply them to your work. It's, It's important just to remain always on the lookout and on the edge of new things and new developments. And I know that trade associations are always uh, or often portrayed as a very conservative, even sometimes backward <laughs> associations, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be this way. And as I said, the past years, I've seen a tremendous progress, not just in our organization, but also in other trade associations that, are, that want to become more agile, more proactive, more forward-looking and embrace all the digital innovation, but also become more creative in the way they convey uh, their messages. And this is, I think, at the end of the day, it's about survival of the fittest. I mean, we have, I think, this morning I checked, 13,000 organizations registered on the EU Transparency Register. So 13,000 players competing for attention of a very small group of decision makers. That means that you you have to be creative, you have to be on top of your game, and you have to regard uh, comms as a strategic function, because if you don't do that, then, well you may be missing out on a lot of opportunities in this in this very busy environment. And that also brings me to this whole idea of adding comms as a strategic function in trade associations. So, and I'm, I posted about it a few weeks ago on my LinkedIn account, and the amount of 
reactions that I received from from my peers, from other people, was just overwhelming. Um, my inbox literally exploded mm. with private messages, people saying, "Well, this is that's been my experience so far. This is so true." So hear me out. I may be onto something here. So when association leadership adds comms a strategic function to the, the the governance there is often this expectations versus reality gap if you treat comms as strategic function then it means that you have to do two things first you have to give your comms professional a seat at the decision making table i think that's logical and then second is that you have to run this seat from the very beginning of a project or a process and not at the end of the life cycle, like we say in Brussels. <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is where I think some organizations um, are struggling a little bit. And um, in experience of, of a lot of my peers, I mean, how many times did we have other team members come to us saying, oh, we or the members need a press release on this, or members want a video on that, or they want a social media campaign on this. Can you just come up with proposals really quickly? And then you, as a communications professional, you, you say, okay, hold on, let's just think this through. So what's the purpose of doing this? What's your main message? What do you want your audience to do after they see or hear this? Do you know what your audience thinks about your message? Why doing this now? How does this fit into the overall uh, strategy of your of your team? And so on and so forth. So you start asking those legitimate questions to define the best way forward. But that, of course, sometimes leads to frustration mm -hmm. because some people think that you just rain on their parade. <laughs> you spoil their plan. So everybody's frustrated, uh, comms professionals frustrated because he or she cannot do his job properly and just spends most of the time as a kind of a policeman, a law enforcement officer, rather than actually creating something useful. So I don't know, um, and, and in short, my, my message to all the trade association leaders who are listening to us uh, now, just uh, be very uh, clear and transparent about this. And if for some reason you're not willing or able to accommodate the needs of, of, uh, of comms as a strategic function. So to grant this seat at the table, just be very clear about that with whoever you are hiring to do comms for you and make it clear that this is a purely service function. It's not a strategic function. So that's, I think, sometimes uh, a struggle here in Brussels that associations cannot really decide, okay, do, you know, do we want to do it strategically or we just treat comms as an afterthought. I mean, both options are, are possible. You just have to make your, make up your mind what you want to do. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen that before. Yeah. Sometimes comms is seen as somebody to update the website, put out a tweet and, and, and write a press release and not, not at the heart of it. So I think that that's really interesting what you're saying. And I think having comms involved from the beginning of the position setting process of the policy making process is so key, even if it's just to sense check what, what people are saying. Sometimes we see this in the work we're doing where the policy is set by the engineers and they don't understand the political environment, they don't understand how to make messages resonate, but by the time that document's reached, the, whether it's the advocacy team or the comms team, it's already too late to, to make it work. And then, and then, as you say, you start raining on, 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 on people's parade. Starting to yeah, come, come to end of time, so anything you want to, to plug? You've told us about the Sethic app. Um, do you want to send people to look at your LinkedIn post? What, what do you want to leave our thousands of listeners uh, with as a last, last thought? I feel I've already been uh, over-promoting myself uh, and, and, and Sethic in this podcast. 
No, I, I'm maybe the main takeaway message I think for everybody listening to this podcast is the best message that I can send to all the listeners of this podcast is uh, stay tuned for my episodes because I'm sure there will be even more interesting people joining uh, Connor and Patrick mm. next time. Very kind. Very, very kind. kind. Very kind. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Great conversation.